If you would uh, like to turn to Philippians in your Bible, it's in the New Testament. If you remember our way of finding our way around the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Acts and Romans follow on. Then we have the Corinthians, which don't fit in it. So first and second Corinthians. Then we have the vowels, A-E-I, so Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, O, and then we get to you and you have to find another way of finding your way around your Bible. But I is the last bit that works in the vowel thing, so you can find your way around your New Testaments at least. So it's in the final third of our Bibles. And I'm going to read from uh, chapter 1, the very beginning of this letter of Paul to the church at Philippi. And then we're going to flip over and read a little bit from chapter 3. It's stuff that you will have read before, I'm sure. If you haven't read it, you'll be, uh, you'll, you'll be aware of it. It's one of these things that Christians sometimes just tag into prayers. You know how we have like our favorite bits of the Bible that we just like to tag into prayers, but sometimes we take them out of context. Sometimes uh, we don't really know what they're saying. But anyway, you'll have heard this stuff. And this morning we're going to be thinking a little bit about what is God really saying uh, through it. So uh, Philippians chapter 1 says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Just a, a reminder that saints simply means Christians, okay? It's not talking about somebody who has gone through a process of beatification that's taken however many years. It just means a follower of Jesus is a saint. We are saints. We still sin, Okay, but we, it, the day you become a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. So that's what Paul means when he writes uh, the, his letters. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And then over to chapter 3 and verse 12. And Paul, you, you need to go away and you need to read your Bibles and you need to read them out loud and you just want to put, the, put tone into it and all of that sort of thing. But then in chapter 3, Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword. And we pray that you would take my words, my thoughts, and the meditations of all of our hearts. And that you would cut to the center of our lives. That you would speak to the areas that only each of us individually might know need spoken into. That you would shine a light on us in order that we might be transformed, changed, and you would continue to be glorified in us and through us. Amen. 
We, we don't watch that much TV in our house these days. We've just basically uh, made a decision that there's other things that we want to do with our time. There's other priorities in our life these days. Uh, but we have started to get into Peppa Pig and Peter Rabbit. I don't know like, if anybody else is a fan of them, but I know the Peter Rabbit songs. I know it when it comes on. If anybody says Peppa Pig in my house, I just automatically go... I can't believe it. It's terrible. Like a few weeks, a few weeks ago, I would never have done that. Now I, whenever I hear the name Peppa Pig, so just come up to me and say Peppa Pig, and I'm going to like that. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, then that's gone way over your head. Uh, but one thing that we did actually watch on TV recently was the Great British Bake Off, Creme de la Creme. Anybody else watch that? Anybody never heard of the Great British Bake Off? Okay, right. Well, that's good. So you all know what the Great British Bake Off is. And the Great British Bake Off creme de la creme is like the Great British Bake Off on steroids, okay? Because it isn't just like the amateurs who are trying to make stuff. This is like the professionals, okay? And and so over the course of the weeks, if you didn't watch creme de la creme, you've got to watch it. Go on iPlayer, catch up on it. It's amazing. But over the course of the weeks, you have these professional bakery teams and they're coming together and each week they have to make a challenge and it's normally got something to do they have to make something massive out of sugar or out of chocolate or whatever it is and week on week they whittle it down until they have two teams left two teams of three that have the bonanza monster massive challenge and and they have something like eight or ten hours and they have bonus hours so that they can do their sugar craft all of and, and all of that sort of thing they have about eight or ten hours to to make just like the biggest, like probably like a thousand different pastries and sugar things and chocolatey things and that sort of thing. And like Karen and me, we are like proper sugar and chocolate experts now. Like we're sat there and like, even when they're like stretching out the sugar, me and Karen are going, oh, that doesn't look too good. Or, oh, that looks good. They've got that one nailed. And, 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 and anyway, almost without fail, what happens at the end is somebody will present something amazing before the chef, before the chefs who are judging it. And they'll say, that looks absolutely amazing. And then you know what happens when they say that looks absolutely amazing? It's going to taste terrible. Okay, so then they like bite into it and like they spit it out or something like that and they go, that's disgusting. Or conversely, they, they present something that just looks like a dog's dinner before the chefs and you're all going, oh, I wouldn't touch that with a barge pole. But they put it in their mouths and they're like, that is culinary heaven. Uh, and then, even more rare, the rarest moment of, t- of all is where they put something before the chef that looks amazing and the chef bites into it. And then they just go like this, hold the hand out, and they go, good job, chef. And they shake their hand, and you're like, wow, that person just hit perfection. But perfection is very, very rarely hit. And I was thinking a little bit about other areas of our life, and is it possible that we can actually hit perfection in anything in our life? I've come up with perhaps one example, and maybe a scientist here might say there are other subjects where this can happen, but I reckon that perhaps the only thing that you can get absolutely 100% in might be a maths exam, because there's a right or a wrong answer. Maybe there is in other sciences and that sort of thing, but there are some things where you can get 100%, where you can actually walk out and say that was absolutely perfect. But in almost every other area of life we are striving for perfection and never getting there so uh, you might you might kind of be in it could be based
It could be relationships. It could be sport. You, you are striving for the perfect bake. You are striving for the perfect marriage. You are striving for the perfect, Karen's striving hard for that. Um, you're striving like for the perfect match. How often do sports people, they, they'll like say, you know, we are, we are striving for perfection. We did well, but there's always something more that we can do. Perfection is so, so rare. And we always find that we get to that point where you think, Oh yeah, today I nailed it as a husband, or today I nailed it as a friend, or today I nailed it as whatever. And then something happens and you just blow it all, you get angry, or you make a mistake in work, or whatever it happens to be. And suddenly you realize once again that perfection is so far beyond your grasp. And this morning we're continuing a series, and the series is called I am. And if you were here for the first week of this series, you'll remember that I said, this isn't a series about uh, the I ams of who God is. So you'll remember that in the Old Testament, God appears to Moses and he says, tell them that I am has sent me. I am who I am. And, and so when a Jewish person heard I am, they would know that that's like the divine name. That is in, That is just so... It's almost like the name that can't be said. It's so holy. I am. Tell them I am has sent me. And we said like the, the amazing thing that Jesus does then uh, in his ministry is he picks up on the divine I am and he says I am. And remember, like, that the Jews who heard that, they would have been like, no way, this guy is blaspheming. He is taking the divine name and he is attributing it to himself. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, and so on. And, uh, but we're not talking about that. We're not even talking about what I said was perhaps the most challenging I am of all, which is when Jesus says to us, you are the light of the world. In other words, I am the light of the world. And you can each say that, I am the light of the world. We're not even talking about that sort of I am in this series. We are talking in this series about some of the I ams that the Bible teaches us about us. Some of the I ams that the Bible teaches us about us. And we started off our series by saying, I am created in the image of God. I said, that is the underpinning for each and every one of us. I am created in the image of God. And this morning we're going to move on to our second I am. And the first thing I want to say about this I am is you will not find it explicitly stated in scripture. And some of you are probably panicking already when I say that. You will not find this I am literally spelled out in black and white in scripture. And I just want to really quickly throw in that that teaches us something really important about how we approach the scriptures. You see, as Christians, at times we can have this way of saying about the Bible, the Bible says. And I just want to reaffirm something that I've said many times here at Southside and will continue to say here at Southside. That is a really, really dangerous statement to make. The Bible says... Because with enough dot, dot, dots and enough taking this out and that out and putting that bit together, you can make the Bible say pretty much anything. We are not interested simply in what the Bible says. We're interested in what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach us about God? What does the Bible teach us about who we are in God? And so the example that I sometimes use for this, but just to give you uh, an idea uh, of where, I, where I'm coming from. Very often Christians might say, the Bible says a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. And I would say, no, it doesn't. 
Nowhere in scripture could you take me to a verse that says a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. However, I believe that the Bible teaches that whenever God's people hook up with people who aren't the people of God, things kind of go onto, onto rocky ground. But nowhere in scripture will you actually find that sentence, the Bible says. And this morning it's the same because the I am about us that we're thinking about this morning is I am a work in progress. I am a work in progress. But nowhere in scripture will you literally found it said, I am a work in progress. Nowhere is it explicitly stated, I am a work in progress. But if you look at every single saint throughout scripture, if you look at every single life story throughout scripture, with the exception of Jesus, each and every one of those lives points to this truth. I am a work in progress. And what I want to do this morning is there's four things that I kind of want to race through. And as we did with um, I am created in the image of God, I want to do the same this morning. Just pull out four ideas that I hope uh, they aren't the only ideas around this. They aren't the only things that you could say um, uh, are, are positive and, and, and affirming and challenging in terms of how this might impact your life. But they are four things that I believe if as a people we could really grasp hold of them, live in light of them, walk under them, that our lives would be absolutely transformed as we seek to follow Jesus. And the first thing is this, because we are works in progress, because we are works in progress, we are reminded of our salvation. That's where I want to start. Because we are works in progress, we are reminded of our salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, simply this, that for a work to be in progress, it has to have a starting point. For a work to be in progress, it has to have a starting point. I've started to learn the ukulele, okay? And uh, three weeks ago, I couldn't play anything. And some would argue I still can't play anything. But I am telling you that I can now play Here We Go Looby Loo and Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And uh, like, honestly, right, you wanna, I'm going to be like up here before you know it. Like, we're, like, we're going to write a worship song to the, to the tune of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star just so I can like... T- I don't know how to tune it, by the way. If anybody knows how to tune it, can you uh, just... Speak to me afterwards because I need some help. It's it's going out of tune. But, you know, my progress in learning the ukulele is measured from a starting point. I could not play a single thing, and now I'm on my way to becoming the Beethoven of the little guitar. Um, A start, uh, progress demands a starting point. And the starting point for each of us is the day that we encounter Jesus. Paul says at the beginning of Philippians, he says, I am confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What is the good work that Paul is talking about? The good work is the salvation that the Philippian believers had received. It is the, 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 the moving from darkness into light. It's the becoming new creations. It's being born again. He's talking about that day for himself where the scales literally fell off his eyes and he realized that Jesus is Lord. Because Paul knows, and he, and he writes this to the Ephesians, that it is because of his great love for us, that God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ while we were dead in our transgressions. Paul is looking back to that day of salvation, and he is saying we are a work in progress, and the starting point for that progress is the day you became a follower of Jesus. Some of the reading I was 
doing this week said this. It says, it's impossible to live what some might call a Christian life without being a true follower of Jesus. It's impossible. When people talk to me about living a good Christian life, I said, that's a contradiction in terms. You cannot live a good Christian life. That's why you need to be a Christian. There's no such thing as a good Christian life. But then this writer says this, the new status which God has freely bestowed on us is crucial. You can't live a Christian life without it. It not only fixes our relationships with God, it also serves as the fountainhead out of which everything else flows. It's the fountainhead out of which the Christian life emerges. Without a start point, progress is never going to happen. Without receiving that free gift of God's grace, without receiving salvation, being born again, whatever you want to call it, coming into a relationship with Jesus, a living relationship made possible only because Jesus died on a cross but didn't stay dead, that he was buried in a tomb but didn't stay buried, that he rose again only because of that truth. Is it possible for us to be called works in progress? Because works in progress all have a starting point. Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, they are all works in progress. And their work in progress started with a genuine and life-changing encounter with the God who said, I am who I am. And I've suggested this a few times at Southside. It's nearly six years since I first preached at Southside, six years in August, um, Time flies when you're having fun. It's probably dragged for you guys. But, um, you know, I can remember that the first time I preached at Southside, I talked about going out and remembering what we did. I can remember I talked about England winning the 1966 World Cup and all of that sort of thing. I know it's probably etched in your memories. The sermon, not England winning the World Cup. But, uh, and, uh, and I said, you know, What we need to do is we need to be people who remember. Remember when Israel crossed into the promised land, as they crossed the Jordan, they took stones and they put stones on the far side of the Jordan to remind them that God had taken them uh, through the river Jordan and into the promised land. And in a very real way, God has taken us through our river Jordan and we we are in his kingdom. We are people who have passed through. That's what baptism symbols. It symbols in a way like that, that baptism that Israel had through Jordan into, into the kingdom so to speak. And so we, all, we each took stones that day. And I want to say again, metaphorically at the very least, take a stone from where you passed through. I was looking at some photos uh, earlier this week and I, I think I might have shown them to Emily, I can't remember, but I have photos of my computer of the very spot where I became a Christian. I've shown them in Southside before. Literally the spot of grass that I was sat on when I became a Christian. And what I want to say to you guys as, as, as we think about, well, how do we live out and how do we live in light of this idea of being works in progress is go back to the starting point. Go back to that place where you encountered Jesus, where you had a significant life change. I was talking to my uncle the other day. It's such a privilege for me. I, I shouldn't maybe really do this, but my aunt is sat down here. She's my godmother. Um, and I wasn't a Christian until I was 21, as you know, but I believe that I'm a Christian because of the prayers of my aunt and my uncle. I don't know why they're not sat together, but um, they have a great marriage. (laughs) They're here to do marriage counseling with me and Karen this week, so God help all of us. But, um, but, But go back to that place. Go back 
to that memory. My uncle said to me on Friday night, he said, I can never remember a time when I wasn't a follower of Jesus. And he said that when he was a student, um, he, somebody came and spoke to him and said, oh, well, you need to be really careful if you can't remember a time when you were a follower of Jesus. Because like, basically, how do you know that it was real? And he said that in an absolute God moment, he said to the person, can you remember being born? And they said, no. And he said, well, how do you know you're alive? <laughs> so I want to speak that over us. Some of you will be able to go time and place. Some of you will be able to literally, perhaps it was in air or in air, and you're going to be able to go back to the place this week and say, I became a follower of Jesus in this place. My progress is measured from this place. Some of you won't be able to do that. Some of you have known Jesus all of your days, and we rejoice in that. I am almost, you know, if jealousy wasn't a sin, I would say I am jealous of those of you who have known Jesus all of your lives, because I wish that I had known and walked with Jesus all of my life. But, but whatever and your story is, go back to that place or a time or an encounter or just sit there and know that you were born again that you have been given new birth into a living hope and it is from there that our progress is measured when we hear these words I am a work in progress celebrate and rejoice in your salvation because that's the starting point So we're works in progress, which means that we are forced to remember and rejoice and celebrate and live in light of our salvation. Uh, But but the next thing is that because we are works in progress, it means that we need to be forced to remember that we are not perfect, but neither is anybody else perfect. Paul says in chapter 3, which is why I flipped over and carried on reading from chapter 3, he said, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You are not perfect and you all know that you are not perfect. But do you know what what really fries my brain? That imperfect people like me expect other people to be perfect. There is one person in the world who I am happy with not being perfect and that is me. But all the rest of you, man alive, if you get on my nerves or if you do something wrong or if you forget to do something, I'm like, what is that person doing? And so the very first thing I want to say is because you are a work in progress, you are not perfect, but neither are your colleagues and neither are your children and neither is your husband or your wife or your mum or your dad or whoever it is you live with or, or, or do life with. They are not perfect. Also, be humble. Do not judge. But do help each other along the road to perfection because that's what being a brother and sister in Jesus Christ is. That's just a kind of an aside here. Because really, I've read those words of Paul saying, not that I've already achieved all of this, not that I've already been made perfect. And I thought, what does Paul write to Timothy and write to Titus? You remember? It's It's to do with leadership. We're doing that, we're calling a new leadership. We're in that process at the moment. And because I know that nobody's going to shout it out, Paul says that a leader should be blameless. Paul, the man who is one of the leaders in the early church, who writes, not that I have already achieved this, not that I have already been made perfect, writes elsewhere that a leader needs to be blameless. And as a leader, I'm looking at that and I'm going... Well, which is it, Paul? <laughs> which, which is it that you are asking of me? And again, this is a really important point for us in how we read our Bibles. 
Because the context for all of scripture is all of scripture. The Bible can only be understood properly by the power of the Holy Spirit, but in the context of all of the Bible. You can't just take little bits here and little bits there because some people might go, oh, that person can't be a leader because they're not blameless. And then somebody else might take this bit in Philippians and say, oh, that person can be a leader because nobody's, you know, you can do whatever you want. The context for understanding scripture is all of scripture. And so what I believe Paul must be meaning here, because he can't say in one place that you need to be blameless and in another place uh, that nobody's perfect. And so what I believe Paul is talking about is that trajectory of moving towards something. It's that trajectory that has been started at salvation, the starting point of our progress. And yet, which we're moving towards, which we haven't fully reached because we are still here and we are waiting for the kingdom to be fully realized. And the really important implication for us of this is that it means that you do not need to be perfect before you do something for God. And that's what I want to speak out over us this morning. As I was praying and just looking over my notes for a final time this morning, I felt this was really important to speak out over this church. As I say, I'm not sure if it is to do with our literal leadership calling or if it might be that some of you feel that God is calling you to move into something. It might be a ministry area within the church. It might be that you think God is leading you to step out into something in your life. And you're sitting there and you're going, but I'm not perfect. You know, I'm not good enough or, or whatever it might happen to be. Not I'm not perfect. You all know that. I'm not good enough. And what I want to say is that, that you don't need to be good enough to step into what God has for you. You just need to be on that Christ-like trajectory. If it was a case of not, none of us would be good enough. None of us would be in leadership. None of us would be serving. None of us would be doing anything. And so if you are sat here this morning and whatever it is and wherever that area is, you're kind of going, I can't do it because I am not good enough. I want to say none of us are. Paul wasn't. David wasn't. Peter wasn't. Look at these guys again and again throughout scripture. Do not let your lack of perfection stand in the way of what God is calling you to do. Because we are works in progress. We have a starting point because we are works in progress. We are not perfect. And then comes the kick. The tension, if you like. And the tension is this. Because we are works in progress, progression is a non-negotiable. Progression is a non-negotiable. When Jesus, you know, many of us will know the Great Commission of Matthew 28. We read them in the other Gospels. We read them in uh, the beginning of Acts. We read Jesus' missionary call to the church. People have responded to, the, to that over the centuries, over 2,000 years. People have responded to Jesus' call to go. And yet, there is a great omission. Dallas Willard writes a book called The Great Omission. And the great omission from the Great Commission, to use that kind of rhyming phrase, is this. Jesus doesn't just call us to go. He calls us to go and make disciples. And a disciple is one who is becoming more like Jesus. A disciple is one who, from a starting point of salvation, is being changed from glory into glory, as that great hymn says. Jesus' commission to the church wasn't simply to make disciples. It was to see lives transformed in the here and now as we wait for, for the full coming of his kingdom. And I would say that the Western church, and I absolutely include Southside in this, 
that we have lost any major focus that we might once have had on discipleship. That we have lost any major focus that we might once have, have had on seeing lives change beyond just a kind of that person's over the line. How many of us rejoice? You know, I was thinking about it during the week. I've had the privilege of being people when they say that they've become a Christian. But they're nowhere now. <laughs> they're nowhere. They're not walking with Jesus. They're not part of a church family. And by that, I don't mean going to church on a Sunday. I mean, that's, that's like the smallest part of it. Church can be anything, anytime, anywhere. But they're not part of that. And I was thinking, what is the only biblical picture of a converted life? And I believe it is this, fruit. The only biblical picture of a life that is truly following Jesus, the only biblical measure of true conversion is a life that is being transformed. The Bible doesn't talk about getting people over a line. The Bible doesn't talk about a bare minimum. The Bible talks about people who encounter Jesus and out of that encounter with Jesus, their whole lives are transformed. They never had this idea. The early church never had any, they, they would not recognize the idea of celebrating somebody coming into the kingdom and then forgetting about them for the next 50 years but standing at a graveside going, oh, but they made a confession of faith when they were 15. That is not biblical Christ following. Biblical Christ following is always a starting point leading to a progression. That's why, and these are some scary old verses, that's why Jesus can say that you recognize a tree by its fruit. That's why perhaps even more scarily Jesus says that there will be people who said, Lord, Lord. And if this doesn't scare you, at least kind of give you that kind of godly fear, I don't know what would. But Jesus says there will even be people who say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I don't know who you are. In that book that I was saying about the Dallas Willard book, Dallas Willard writes this, we must stop using the fact that we cannot earn grace as an excuse for not energetically seeking to receive grace. Having been found by God, we then become seekers of ever fuller life in him. And then he says this. This is so incredible, this phrase. Grace is opposed to earning. Please, God, never let me say that we can earn salvation. Never let me say that we can earn grace. Grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. John Piper says something similar. This is what he writes. New birth is not conditional. No act of ours brings it about. It is supernatural. Our salvation is supernatural. New birth is supernatural. And then he says this. Final salvation from future judgment is conditional. It will not happen apart from our persevering faith. Me and Dan were talking about this during the week. And he said to me, do you believe that somebody can lose their salvation? And I said, no. I don't believe that somebody can lose their salvation. But I believe that the true mark, and I believe the Bible teaches this, the true mark of salvation is a life that is becoming more Christ-like. Not a life that is perfect, but a life 
that is on that trajectory to becoming more like Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews says that we must make every effort to be holy. Why? Because without holiness, we will not see God. Peter, who if you're going to survey any of the biblical characters and say, you know, where is a guy who, yes, he absolutely loved Jesus. He's the one who confesses, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Where else shall we go? Peter, the rock on which, the the little rock that is, by the way, uh, on which the church is going to be built. Jesus is the big rock. And yet Peter can write this. He knows it is grace. He falls all of the time or he falls many times. And he says this in his second letter. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love because Peter knew, Paul knew just like Dallas Willard writes that the sign of a converted life is a life that is being transformed a life that is not yet perfect but is not what it once was I was listening to a podcast during the week um, and the guy described himself as a hopeful universalist. So I want to just chuck this in as I, as I move into a last point. He described himself as a hopeful universalist. He said that he believes that the only thing that scripture teaches is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That you can only come to the Father through him. That we, that we will have eternal life only because of Jesus. And then he said, but if I get to heaven and everybody is there... I'm not going to be knocking down God's door going, that's not fair. (laughs) That's not right. How come that person's there or that person's there? He said, I'm a hopeful, although I don't see it in scripture, I'm hopeful that God in his grace is somehow going to do something like that. And I would say the same in relation to this point. I would be hopeful. (laughs) I would be hopeful that people who have literally said, I've crossed over the line, I got converted when I was whatever. I would be hopeful that they would be in heaven. I would be hopeful that they are not going to be cut off from God for eternity. But I absolutely stand on what I have said this morning, which is that the only biblical picture of true salvation is a life that works out in transformation. And so my question for myself and my question for all of us is, is Christ-likeness growing in my life? Is there Christ-like progression in your life? Are you doing things? Are you in relationships with people? Are you seeking God through his word and prayer and the spirit and community that are helping you progress? Grace is opposed to earning but not to effort. The final thing that I want to, I believe, you know, there's so much that we could think about in this. But the final thing is that because we are works in progress, And this flows out of that last one. Because we are works in progress, we need to position ourselves for transformation. Romans 8, chapter 11. uh, Romans 8, chapter 11. Romans 8, verse 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives, is living in you. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead 
is, uh, is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. And, and, and what this is saying is that you already have everything you need to become more like Jesus in you. You don't have to go out and think, okay, how am I today going to get love? How am I today going to get um, gentleness? How am I today going to get self-control? If you are a follower of Jesus, you already have all of that in you because the Holy Spirit is in you and it is the Holy Spirit's fruit, not yours. So if that is already in you, what it means is that actually you don't have to go out and try and get it. You simply have to position your lives in such a way that the Spirit can grow that in your lives. Now, I read this this week, a brilliant analogy for this. When you go sunbathing, okay, and it's summer's coming up and probably a lot of you are getting ready for it. When you go sunbathing, you don't get the tan. The sun brings the tan. You just position yourself in relation to the sun don't you? Like some of you, if you're, if you're like me, you set a little watch there and it's like, oh, I've got to roll over. And it's like when you're cooking sausages, you got to make sure you don't just want the front or the back done. You've got to make sure that it's an all over tan. Okay. But, but you, you do not tan yourself. Okay. I'm just letting you know that just a tip. You do not tan yourself, but you position yourself in relation to the sun in order that the sun might do its work. And that is exactly, Karen, what are you saying? It's not, okay, sorry. In case you didn't realize, I was being sarcastic there. Can you go out and take crash or something? Just wrecking everything. Uh, Where was I? We position ourselves in relation to the sun and the sun does the work and so it is in transformation. So it is in this process that sometimes we call sanctification. It is already in us. Everything we need is already there because the Holy Spirit, the third person of the eternal trinity, whose fruit it is, whose gifts they are, is already in you if you follow Jesus. And what you need to do is get yourself in the right place in relation to that. You do not have to strive and strive and go and go and go. I read this this morning. Give up the struggle and the fight. Relax in the omnipotence of the Lord Jesus. Look up into his lovely face and as you behold him, he will transform you into his likeness. And then listen to this. You do the beholding. He does the transforming. We are called to position ourselves In such a way that the Holy Spirit who lives in you if you are a true follower of Jesus can bring out the fruit that is already sitting there dormant in your lives. And not dormant. We see it working itself out already. And so final question. How are you positioning yourself for this work? Are you positioning yourself for this work? The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in me. We have everything we need already. And yes, we are works in progress. And that means that we are not perfect. Yes, we are works in progress. That means that nobody is perfect. Yes, we are works in progress, which means that we have a way to go. But because we are works in progress, we can look back to a glorious time or place or truth that you have been born again, that you have crossed from darkness into light, and that at that moment, at that time, through that process, whatever it was for you, the Holy Spirit came and made his home in you. And because of that, 
And only because of that, everything you need is there for this progression, which is the measure of our encounter and our relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we again pray that what is not from you would just fall on the ground and disappear. But that what is your word for your people would take root in our hearts. Lord, may we be a people who daily rejoice and celebrate and live in light of our salvation. That is the starting point. We thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us, Jesus. That you didn't need us to be perfect. And that you don't even ask us that of us now. But that by your spirit, you are in the process of transforming us until that day when we will be made perfect. When you return or when we go to be with you. We ask that you would help us to position ourselves for transformation. To position ourselves so that that good work that you have started in us will come to completion on the day of Jesus' return. Thank you, Jesus. Would you go on teaching us, we pray, long beyond this time. And in such a way that this world will see that we are your disciples. And that people might come to know you through us. For we ask this in your transforming name. Amen.